Chapters 9 through 11 of Futility, a novel on Russian themes by William Gerhardi. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Chapter 9 It was a day, I remember, of a peculiar warmth and fragrance, when you could feel that winter has become spring. I was strolling down the Nevsky, and upon the wide-lighted splendor of this queen of streets, I ran into Nikolai Vasilievich with a pretty flapper on his arm. Andrei Andreitch, Nikolai Vasilievich, and we shook hands warmly. May I introduce? And I was introduced. I could hardly recognize him. His careworn look seemed to have deserted him in his dissipation, as if ashamed to accompany him thither. He seemed ten years younger in her presence. He was smarter, bore himself better, seemed actually taller, bigger. Oh, was it at all the same Nikolai Vasilievich who wrangled so furiously with Fanny Ivanovna? This Nikolai Vasilievich was as happy as a schoolboy. But before we had walked ten yards, Nikolai Vasilievich was already expatiating on his unhappy family affairs. Well, well, he sighed. He rather liked to sigh over his sins. Indeed, it appeared that his distressing family burdens formed the sole subject of his conversation with this engaging flapper. "'I keep telling Nikolai,' said Zina, "'don't marry me, don't. It is superfluous. I love you so much that I am perfectly prepared to live with you, just to show how I really love you. What is marriage? A piece of paper. It's absurd. It means nothing. What do we care? What do I care?' I have been reading Verbitskaya's Springs of Happiness. She seems to agree with me. No, said her noble lover. I wouldn't think of taking advantage of your innocence. Verbitskaya is a fool. It would break your people's hearts. You are breaking your own people's hearts, Nikolai Vasilievich, I ventured. Exactly, rejoined Nick. He hardly looked old enough to warrant the dignity of Nikolai Vasilievich. I have broken enough hearts. I don't want to break any more. I've had enough of this heart-breaking business, I can tell you. It is enough to break your own. Your Oscar Wilde, Zina turned to me, said that hearts were made to be broken. He also said, I retorted, that we all kill the thing we love, and, in fact, a few other expensive things of that sort. But it is no reason, I assure you, why you should break anybody's heart. Exactly, said Nicholas. You think it very jolly to live together without being married, don't you? But you just ask Fanny Ivanovna how she feels about it. No, my child, your Oscar Wilde is a fool. Quite automatically we turned into a cinema, the Parisiana in the Nevsky, and witnessed the sort of stuff to which an uncomplaining public is still being treated every day and night all over the globe. When Nicholas left the box to get some chocolates, Zina put her white-gloved hand on my arm. "'I know,' she said, "'Nikolai is being made to appear a blackguard by people who misunderstand his complex personality. But I am ready to give my life for him, Andrei Andreitch. Oh, you have no idea what a thoroughly good man he is when he is away from all those petty worries, those mean jealousies, those paltry domestic squabbles, those innumerable families all hanging round his neck, 
and he alone, standing up against those legions, yes, legions of relatives and dependents and hangers-on. Oh, don't laugh! I'm not accepting my own people. Oh, no! I am indeed ashamed, Andrei Andreitch, that it should be so. I had a dream last night. Shall I tell you what it was? It was Nikolai, standing high upon a mountain peak, seeking to escape towards light and freedom, and finding that he could not, because he was linked to the past. He tried to break the chains, but the past held him, clung to him, a monster with a thousand arms, like that picture in Gogol's terrible vengeance. He found the past too strong for him. Why can't he break from the past? Why should the past always hold him? Why should he always bear the burden of these families? Andrei Andreitch, he hasn't lived yet. What was that life? I want to help him, make him happy, rid him of these petty worries, these mean intrigues. I want to help, to help, to help. But how can I help? I thought, all night I thought out solutions, and then I came to what seemed to me the one reasonable, the only just solution. I proposed that we should commit suicide together. But, Andrei Andreitch, he doesn't seem to be very keen on it. Poor boy, with all these ugly worries, he is becoming horribly materialistic. They took me that evening to see Zina's people. They lived across the river, over on the Petersburg side, a very large family in a small flat. There were innumerable aunts and uncles, sisters-in-law, second cousins, and such-like relatives, and, of course, a collection of giggling flappers practicing the piano, two ancient grandfathers, the oldest thing in veterans, who had outlived their welcome, whose deaths, in fact, were looked forward to with undisguised impatience, and freely discussed at meals, and a middle-aged doctor, his own health no better for his profession, with only a poor practice to support that swarm, and Nikolai Vasilievich, the mine-owner, standing behind them all like a benediction. In addition there was Uncle Kostya, who, from what I could see, was living on the resources of his younger brother, Zina's father. Uncle Kostya was a writer. Yet, though he had attained middle age, Uncle Kostya had never published a line. His two departments were history and philosophy, and everyone in the family had the greatest respect for Uncle Kostya and thought him very clever. Later I had occasion to observe Uncle Kostya at closer range. He would wake up extremely late and then would sit for hours on his bed, thinking. He did not communicate his thoughts to anybody else, but all the members of the family took it for granted that Uncle Kostya was very clever. Uncle Kostya rarely dressed and rarely washed. When at length he parted with his bed, he would stroll about through all the rooms in his dressing-gown and think. No one spoke to him because, for one thing, all were frightened of displaying their ignorance in conversation, for Uncle Kostya was very clever, and also, I think, because they were loath to interrupt the flow of Uncle Kostya's thoughts. At length, he would settle down at a writing-table near the window in his brother's study, and then for a long time Uncle Kostya would rub his eyes. In a languid manner he would dip his pen into ink, and his hand would proceed to sketch diagrams and flowers on the margin of his foolscap, 
and Uncle Kostia would stare long at the window. Perhaps a buzzing fly, endeavouring to find an exit, would arrest his flow of thoughts, or would promote them, who knows? But Uncle Kostia would grow very still, and one by one the members of the family would leave the room on tiptoe, and the last one out would shut the door behind him noiselessly. For Uncle Kostia was writing. What he wrote no one knew, he had never breathed a word about it to anyone. All we knew was that Uncle Kostia was very clever. From what I could make out, no one had ever seen a line of his writing. But that he thought a great deal, there was no question. His life was spent in contemplation. But what it was he contemplated, equally no one knew. Such was the family to which Nikolai Vasilievich extended his protectorate. "'He is such a really good man,' confided Zina's mother, a grey-haired, god-fearing old lady. "'And to be pursued by those two wicked women, both bent on making his life miserable, these cold and heartless daughters who laugh at him, their own father. Andrei Andreitch, our lives are muddled up enough, God forgive us, and none of us knows where he is or how he stands, or what he is about.' but there are things that in our hearts we know we mustn't do. And for his own daughters to go spying on their father, God forgive me, is the very limit. Just think of it, Andrei Andreitch. Just think of it. Last Sunday, Zina tells me, she was about to meet Nikolai in the summer garden, and can you imagine it, his two daughters, I forget which two, with that baron of theirs, followed them, pursued them wherever they went, giggling all the while as loud as they could, giggling. Nikolai and Zina were compelled to board a tram-cart to escape their pursuit. He wept when he came to me, Andrei Andreitch, and I have never seen Nikolai weep before. He said he hadn't thought it possible of his daughters, Andrei Andreitch. After a somewhat sketchy dinner, we all decided to go to the Saborov Theatre to see a new play. We proceeded accordingly in seven cabs, and settled down in five boxes. About halfway through the first act I perceived Nikolai give a start, and then grow pale. I followed his gaze, and then looked straight before me. In a box almost opposite our own sat Fanny Ivanovna, Sonia, Nina, Vera, Knyats, and Baron Wunderhausen. For some absurd reason, I too felt guilty and uncomfortable to the last degree, almost as if I had been caught red-handed in some disreputable act. Whether the silly play bored them and they were, like us, disgusted with the characteristic utterances of some well-to-do ex-student in the play, holding forth on the disillusionment of life, or whether the sight of the prodigal Nicholas in his congenial surroundings was too much for Fanny Ivanovna, but they all left the theatre before the curtain fell on Act Two. Nikolai Vasilievich seemed unusually morose as we drove home that night through the deserted streets of Petersburg. "'The most perplexing thing about it all, Andrei Andreitch,' said he, "'is, well, it's like that fable of Krylov.' and he quoted the fable with that curious pride that Russians usually take in Krylov's un-Russian, I think British, common sense, as he instanced the case of the load pulled jointly by the swan, the crab, and the pike, in their several characteristically individual directions, with the distressing result, the moral, 
that the load, the fabulist tells us, is today exactly where it was before they had started on their expedition. The paradox of Nikolai's position was that he had fled from his many family responsibilities to this engaging flapper precisely because of the intolerable burden of so many responsibilities, and had incurred additional ones. CHAPTER Ten. Now when I ask myself how I could have so hopelessly misgaged the situation, I find it difficult to give a clear account of it. I had wanted to help, to be a friend to all those helpless, charming, and kind-hearted people. Anyhow, it was my first experience of intervention. That night I lay awake in bed, planning how I could straighten out the tangle. Was it not, I pondered, up to me, their mutual confidant, to see that these childish, fascinating people did not destroy each other's lives in their muddle-headedness and inertia? The older people had all blundered. Nina had been on a mission to Moscow, and Nina had failed. They would trust me, I said, to act for the best. And was it not a worthy task to save these helpless creatures from so much misery and anguish? Well, of course it was. Suddenly I felt violently enthusiastic. I felt so violently enthusiastic that I jumped out of bed. I paced the floor that midnight hour, thinking with a Napoleonic concentration. I felt, as my thoughts ran ahead of me, that the dramatis personae of this human drama was much too long to enable me to assign successfully to each character the part he was to play in his colleagues' lives. I switched on the light over my writing-table and began to write. I wrote down their names in two columns. Then I perceived that the two columns did not serve my purpose, so I drew arrows and circles round the names, and endeavoured to arrange them in sets and groups according to my own ideas as to how they should be mated. I began by mating Nina with myself. This was easy enough, it was obvious. I consented to make Baron Wunderhausen a present of Sonia. That was done. Obviously Knyats would have to go on living on Nikolai Vasilievich till some employment could be found for him. I should have to go into this question later, examine the shares, see what possibilities they had of ever going up, and so on. Now so much was settled. Of course Magda Nikolaevna must have her divorce. No useful purpose would be served by putting spokes in her wheel, by hindering her in her praiseworthy intention to marry Chetedik, that Austrian fellow, who was extraordinarily wealthy. They wanted all the money they could get. But the condition of this concession should be that Chichetic must agree to the brunt of supporting the multitudinous families, dependents, and hangers-on with Nikolai Vasilievich, until such time at least as something more definite could be known about the mines. It might be advisable to sell the mines and repurchase the mortgaged house in the Mohovaya. But that was a detail that could be settled later. I felt that I was getting on marvelously. Now that Nicholas and Magda were divorced, I could not help calling them by their diminutives, for I felt so much older and wiser than they, having taken them in hand. Nicholas must be prevailed upon to marry Fanny. This step would do much to relieve the tension and prevent bad blood between the two. It would secure Fanny's prestige in her own eyes, 
and would consolidate her position in regard to her people in Germany. Now, Fanny having been granted this very liberal concession, which, after all, was nothing short of her one real great ambition in life, she, on her part, should not be allowed to impede Zina's passionate desire to live with Nicholas, a gratification, as a matter of fact, demanded by the overpowering love of two human beings, and Zina, who had always been prepared for anything from suicide upward, would not begrudge Fanny the formal and somewhat hollow superiority of wedlock, while Zina's people, in the face of the considerable financial assistance that they would continue to receive at the hands of Nikolai and Magda's future husband, would find that their objection carried little moral weight. There remained Vera. She should stay, provisionally, with Fanny Ivanovna and Nicholas, the latter spending as much time in Fanny's household as might be deemed fit or practicable. Vera hated her father, and Eisenstein, poor as he was, would not be likely to demand his daughter. Now Eisenstein should not be left without a job. He must leave the stock exchange. That was absolutely necessary. His dental qualifications should be looked into, and he might, but that at any rate was not of the first importance, be made assistant to Zina's father, though, unfortunately, the latter's practice was all too small already. How to enlarge the practice could be settled afterwards. Uncle Kostya's manuscripts would have to be examined, and possibly some of his deeper thoughts might be published with advantage. Now, having made these few preliminary arrangements, it was imperative to ensure the financial working of this new combine. Well, expenses must be cut down all around. Nicholas and Chechetek should not be taxed too heavily, for if they went bankrupt, then the whole new structure would collapse like a pack of cards. I would set myself, at an early date, to examine very carefully the requirements of the various families and hangers-on. First, there was Fanny's family in Germany. Now, Fanny, once definitely married to Nicholas, should have more moral courage to face the situation. Those spendthrift brothers in the guards must be told to chuck the army and enter a commercial life. Militarism was no honorable profession. The sisters should marry. For all I knew, they might long ago have married men with considerable means, but have kept it quiet from their sister so as to continue to draw allowances from Nicky. Now Zina's family came next. The number of its mere hangers-on was preposterous. Of course, those two ancient grandfathers were already tottering, and their end was nigh. The flappers who strummed on the piano were growing up. A few of them might be conveniently married off to suitable and financially independent young men. Zina's father, assisted by Eisenstein, might make a better job of his doctoring, though, to begin with, he should receive medical treatment himself. Then, I thought, there was no then. I had disposed of them all. There were, indeed, fewer cases than I had expected. I had disposed of them as I had gone along. Of course, Baron Wunderhausen, after he had married Sonia, was not really disposed of, perhaps on the contrary. But this was an isolated case into which I need not enter, at any rate just yet. Perhaps I was young and absurd. But was I absurd? What was wrong with my proposition? 
what thoughtful mind would accuse me of absurdity if it only cared to look at the thing squarely the people were helpless children of course i would have to do it all tactfully slowly discreetly but really was it not a worthy mission to arbitrate to settle things i felt as president wilson must have felt years later when he was laying down the principles of a future league of nations i stood before nina the following day bursting with the desire to lay it all down before her all in a heap as it were but holding myself back with an effort conscious of the danger of precipitate action let us sit down nina i said fingering a large folded sheet of paper i held another even larger sheet rolled up under my arm you see nina we young people must help the old people out of their muddles they are obviously unfit to help themselves i have done what i could she answered i have been down to moscow but of course i admit i only acted as fanny ivanovna's envoy exactly you have failed i didn't enjoy plenipotentiary powers as they call it quite so now listen to me nina and i proceeded to lay before her the principles on which i said i was going to reshape their lives each one would have to give up something for the benefit of the whole and each one would similarly receive a compensation of some kind in that future life of theirs in short as i had mapped it out the night before i now unfolded my chart and diagram and she bent over them and our heads nearly touched as we went into this complicated question very thoroughly and seriously indeed i could barely suppress the look of pride that every now and then would steal over my face i explained and propounded with something of the insolence of a creator an artist and a prophet and she listened to me all absorbed in my scheme following the diagram i thought with marvellous intuition ah yes i understand she murmured that's good this couldn't be better ah there you kill two birds with one stone oh three birds then nina rose well what do you think of it i said with undisguised triumph in my look and looking at me with a quaint and sudden seriousness that astonished me immensely to the detriment of my triumphant look she answered all this is very well but pray what business is it all of yours i expostulated i told her how eager i had been to help but she laughed she made fun of me she had been making fun of me all the time even while we were bending with such a serious mien over the chart and diagram and i perceived that her serious look her interest in the scheme a while ago was all deliberately put on to commit me more deeply to the exposition of my scheme in order to make more fun of me afterwards she laughed she burst with merriment nina she laughed still more she was convulsed she could barely speak and the tears came into her eyes then she opened the door into the corridor and called out sonya sonya nina i cried in remonstrance vera she called papa fanny ivanovna kniaz pavel pavelich i had to realize to my deep shame and anguish that they were all at home as they entered the room one by one my face grew crimson 
Nina held out the chart and the diagram at arm's length and explained, it seemed to me, willfully misrepresenting the whole thing, mating individuals in a preposterous fashion, so that Sonia would cry out, But Chichedek does not want to marry Fanny Ivanovna. And Fanny Ivanovna, coloring highly, would exclaim, What? What's that? They more or less belong to the same race, said Nina. Is that the idea? She turned to me with assumed innocence. And Sonia cried again, But Zina doesn't want to live with a dentist Jew. I take it that she'll have to. You can't have it all ways, you know, in such a complicated scheme. And then with a side look at me, Am I right? And why should Chechedik subsidize anybody? Why? said Nina, with a look at me. You're making a farce of it, I cried in utter desperation. It's you who are making a farce of it, Nina cried. Papa, he is laughing at us. Fanny Ivanovna walked out of the room in what seemed to me a defiant manner. I seemed to hear a solitary, hm. Nikolai Vasilievich, with the diagram in his hand and trailing the chart in a degrading manner along the floor, so that I burnt with shame for my neat and able work of the night before, led me aside and said in a very earnest tone of voice, addressing me as young man, you know we are always glad to have you here, but to make fun of our family difficulties? To make fun? To make fun? He was getting a little heated. Of our family difficulties into which you, as our guest, were unavoidably initiated, is, I consider, tactless and indelicate. And he tore up the first chart and then the diagram into a thousand fragments and flung them into the great big stove in the corner of the room. "'Nikolai Vasilievich,' I cried, "'I assure you I only wanted to help.' "'Oh, look here,' said Nikolai Vasilievich impatiently, turning on his heels. "'Please stop these unbecoming jokes. They're not even funny.' And they all left me. But I went into the corridor and caught Nina by the hand and dragged her back into the room and did what is known as giving her a bit of my mind. I was so wild that I did not know how to begin. "'Very well,' I cried at last. "'I shall leave you all to stew in your own juice.' "'Very well,' she said. "'And I shall never come again.' "'Very well,' she said. And it seemed that to whatever I said in my excitement, she answered coldly and indifferently as she sat there, looking at me coldly and indifferently, "'Very well.' until it irritated me beyond endurance, and I cried, "'Very well! But do you silly people realize how utterly laughable you all are? Oh, my God! Can't you see yourselves?' I could not see myself. "'But can't you see that you have been lifted out of Chekhov? Oh, what would he not have given to see you and use you?' "'He's dead,' she said. "'But there are others. Oh, no, my dear, you are not safe.' What's there to prevent some mean, unscrupulous scribbler who cares less for people than for his art from writing you up? One doesn't often come across such incomparable material. I feel I am almost capable of doing it myself. I'll write up such a three sisters as will knock old Chekhov into a cocked hat. It's so easy. You just set down the facts. 
The only handicap that I'm aware of is that you are all so preposterously improbable that no one would believe that you are real. This is, in fact, the trouble with most modern literature. No fiction is good fiction unless it is true to life, and yet no life is worth relating unless it be a life out of the ordinary, and then it seems improbable like fiction. She did not answer, but by her face I could see that now she was angry. I wanted to help you, and this is the thanks I get. And feeling that I must make my exit dramatically conclusive, I said, and now I'm going. And then on reflection added, and I shall never come again. I lingered for a moment to give her an opportunity of stopping me, but she did not avail herself of it, and so I left the room. Once or twice I stopped in the corridor to listen if she was coming, when I intended to continue my dramatic exit. But she did not come. It did not matter anyhow, I thought, as I was putting on my coat, slowly while no one watched me, but if she had appeared I would have hastened my withdrawal. I knew that she would watch me from the window, and at the door there stood that beautifully proportioned nag, Professor Metchnikoff waiting for me. My heart leapt within my breast at the agreeable thought of how I would step into the Victoria and drive off swiftly with a dramatic conclusiveness. I dashed down the staircase. I stood beneath the porch. But where in heaven was Professor Metchnikoff? And I beheld where he was. I had often seen our wily Tartar coachman Alexei shake his little head as I lavished praise on the shape of Professor Metchnikoff and heard him say that the animal was unreliable. I had never believed him. Well, did I now? I beheld a curious spectacle. The little wily Alexei, big-bottomed in accordance with the best traditions, sat helpless on his soft, broad box-seat and flapped his reins in a hopeless fashion, producing with his lips an entreating but ineffectual sound, as Professor Metchnikoff, composed and dignified, retreated backward toward the tram-lines at the crossroads. I ran to his rescue, and taking Professor Metchnikoff by the bridle I led him forward. I looked up as I did so. Thank God Nina was not at the window. I then left Professor Metchnikoff, who stood quite quiet, and stepped into the carriage. No sooner had I done so than Professor Metchnikoff resumed his steady and dignified retreat. The coachman, strapped tightly in his cushioned clothes, was as helpless as a doll. I glanced at the house, and lo, on the balcony above Nina's window, there stood Sonia, Nina, Vera, Knyats, Fanny Ivanovna, Nikolai Vasilievich, and Baron Wunderhausen, looking down at me and laughing. I glanced up at them and crimsoned, and then in a fury I leaned forward and hit Professor Metchnikoff across the back with my walking-stick. Professor Metchnikoff halted for a moment, as if considering what to do, and then decided in favor of a retirement, and, seated in the open carriage, I retreated steadily to the accompaniment of laughter from the balcony. Despite the coachman's frantic efforts to the contrary, I vanished backward very slowly out of sight, when suddenly the fiendish nag jerked forward and trotted home as though nothing had ever been the matter.
Chapter 11 How often then I dreamed of those white nights of Petersburg, those white, mysterious, sleepless nights. Fanny Ivanovna was alone, and we sat together on the open balcony and talked about her troubles in the white night. We sat listless. We felt a strange tremor. We waited for the night, for twilight, but they were not. Heaven had come down over earth. It was one splash of humid, milk-white, pellucid mist. We could see everything before us clearly to the minutest detail. The street, with its tall buildings, tried hard to fall asleep, but could not. It too suffered from insomnia, and the black window-panes of the sleepless houses were like tired eyes of great monsters. Now and then a man would pass beneath us, his steps resounding sharp and loud upon the pavement. Curiously, he had no shadow. Then he was gone, and there was not a soul in the street. A horrible dream crept over us, and, to rouse ourselves from its increasing domination, we talked. Talking with her, as ever, meant listening. "'I have passed the tragic stage, Andrei Andreitch,' she said. "'Now I don't care.' I am almost accustomed to my position. I tried to put a word in. I suggest, Fanny Ivanovna, that you break loose, disentangle yourself from one another, and then begin at the beginning. But she talked into the night, heedless of my remarks. I am only waiting till Nikolai Vasilievich can pay me off. Then I shall return to Germany. I am indeed quite optimistic. I am now at the laughing stage. You see, our life can hardly be called a comedy, for if it were produced on the stage, no one would believe it was real. No real people could be so silly. It is a farce, Andrei Andreitch. You were right when you made a farce of it, with your chart and your diagram and things. Do you remember? I honestly wish to help, I remonstrated but she laughed appreciatively, as if to say that she had noted with approval my attempt to pull her leg. She talked in fragments. "'Yes, Andrei Andreitch, you will find. It is indeed a curious thing that girls who are brought up in such unnatural surroundings as you would think scarcely contributive to the development of the moral virtues are often the very girls who have the strictest possible conception of morality. What they have seen around them has only the effect of putting them upon their guard. They are morally inoculated. I haven't the slightest hesitation in allowing them to read any books they like. They can read Verbitskaya and Atsebashev and Lapodalilevskaya and the rest of them, if they please. You in England are fortunate indeed. You have serious moral writers who think of the good of the race and really teach you something positive, constructive, and worthwhile. You have Byron and Oscar Wilde. Like so many other people in Russia, Fanny Ivanovna believed that England has three great outstanding writers, Byron, Shakespeare, and Oscar Wilde. Ah, Andrei Andreitch, I have had a terrible row with Chichevik. It's all that Baron Wunderhausen. He made love to Nina. I remember that at these words I sat up in my chair. 
in french andrei andreitch i hate talking of such things in russian he said thinking he would impress her but she wouldn't listen my body relaxed in the chair if there's one thing that nina simply cannot stand it is being made love to above all in french he came to me after that and said fanny ivanovna he came over me like that overnight oh then it will go out overnight i said pavel pavlovitch please don't talk of it to me but he turned to me and said in a secretive whisper fanny ivanovna if you will help me to win her heart i will be your greatest friend on earth and then after the manner of a doctor and now tell me all your troubles we'll see what we can do pavel pavlovitch i cried sie sind verrückt my troubles are my private affairs and concern no one but myself good night so he complained of me to magda nikolaevna and so and would you believe it she sent chechedek to tell me that she will not allow me to hamper her daughter's happiness that she doesn't want them to die old maids like me me if you please that i am unfit to look after them and so on and so on andrei andreitch they are sixteen fifteen and fourteen but i can guess the true cause she wants to marry chechedek and she naturally doesn't want her daughters to live with her as this would make her appear her own age to say nothing of the danger of his falling in love with one of them they are so pretty but why need they live with her at all ah said fanny ivanovna she said emphatically that she will not have them live with their father if that's the way he carries on she is afraid it will corrupt their morals but doesn't she continue to draw an allowance from nikolai vasilievich she does but ever since she met chechedek who is preposterously rich she has lost her face in nikolai vasilievich's minds indeed says so openly this distresses nikolai very much indeed i don't know why it is that he attaches such importance to her face in the mines unless it is because he acquired those gold mines in her time of course she is anxious for her daughter's future she feels that their chances are getting spoiled with her own life and that of nikolai vasilievich becoming muddled up i don't doubt that she loves her daughters and means well so now our baron is again after sonya but really after the mines if you ask me she laughed a little privately to herself and then she said i wish he'd wash his neck soon very soon andrei andreitch i shall leave them it will be hard intolerably hard but my mind is made up i am not such a fool andrei andreitch as not to know when my time is up and then i have a little pride still left in me it is now merely a matter of the mines i am ready i have begun to pack i have ridden home to germany but i couldn't post the letter not yet andrei andreitch what have i to live for will you tell me what only when i am gone from them perhaps the children will say she has been good to us she has loved us like a mother and then perhaps i shall not have lived in vain i went home by the silent river 
the fortress of St. Peter and St. Paul was like a weary watchman. The admiralty needle seemed lost in the white mist. I sat down on a stone seat of the embankment and rested. The broad, milky river was so mysteriously calm in the granite frame of the quays. I sat and wondered, then my thoughts began to drift, and I was lost in this half-light, this half-dream, this unreal half-existence. End of section 3